Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 17. Listen for God's word for us. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all all these things. And Laban said to them, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with, with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. It's good to be back together um, with everyone. I was on vacation for the past two weeks, uh, doing a little bit of work around the house, a little staycation action, as well as hanging out with my wife's family and our kids up in Ludington, Michigan on the beach and just doing 10-mile runs and things like that that are way too weird that only fit me. So it's great to be back with everyone, and I just want to begin uh, with a time of prayer. Okay, let's do that. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken in history and you continue to speak through your word to us today at this point in history. You've promised that your spirit would be among us and working within us as a community when we gather in the name of Jesus. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do exactly that. Would your Holy Spirit convict us, guide us, shape us and direct us that we might know a deeper joy in you, a more whole life in you, and wisdom in every step of the journey. We are grateful for you and what you will do. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, on July 29th, many of you may not have known this, but on July 29th, this was a much-anticipated day. On July 29th, the long-anticipated finale of the 15th season of The Bachelorette aired live. That's not what I watched over my vacation. But I'm just letting you know that's aired live. And people around the world, not me of course, but people around the world were watching what would happen. Who would Hannah, you know, this season's bachelorette, choose to be her fiance among these quote-unquote top male candidates? Now listen, I didn't care. 
but I'm going to tell you how it went down. So here's, here's how it went down. So Hannah, right, who would, who would be her love to be? Who would be this fiancé? Out of all of these guys, who would she choose? Well, she gets down eventually after these long, overly dramatic, tear-filled rose ceremonies, right? So many tears, so much dramatic, you know, choreography. It's, it's pretty intense. So they finally, she finally chooses one guy. She chooses Jed. <laughs> Jed, this, you know, this musician that her whole family, when he did the family visit, they said, this isn't the guy for you. Trust us, this isn't the one. And she didn't care. She didn't care what her family had to say. She just wanted Jed. Now, the irony is, is that Jed didn't really care about her. <laughs> her family was right. It's really painful. Like after, the, after she chooses him and they go on this like week-long excursion, all these secrets come out and then they end up breaking up. And what does Hannah do? But she goes back to her second round pick, Tyler. <laughs> like, how is that going to go? Like, hey, I know, I know I chose this other guy on national television over you. But I think we can make it work. Like, this is, it's painful. It's hard. And it's not surprising. Like, is that really how you're going to find love? Of course not. Like, but it's still painful. And it brought me back to seventh grade English class when I passed a note to Rachel and said, do you like me? Check yes or no. Some of you are like, we don't even do that anymore. We just text people. Like that's, that was the note days. You know, you pass the note and she, you know, I, there's 20 minutes left of English class. I get the note back, big check, no, you know. So how is that supposed to go for 20 minutes in English class when I just want to disappear? She knows, I know, I put myself out there. Probably most of the class is giggling about it at this point. And then I think about my kids, Ava, Israel, and Zion. They've got to go through these yucky feelings, right? There's nothing, it feels like there's almost nothing worse than loving someone and not experiencing that love in return. And then wanting to go out on a date with someone and feeling that sting of rejection. Planning a marriage and then seeing it fall apart. Orchestrating life plans and seeing them dissemble. I mean, that's, that's really, really painful. But I think the longer I've thought about that, those feelings of unrequited love, they aren't just in dating relationships. Kids experience this. I think so many kids in our day and age are hungry for their parents' attention and affection, but parents are so busy and distracted and distant. Friendships, I've seen this again and again, where people invest in friendships and then suddenly, out of nowhere, they're shut off. In marriage, this can be experienced. Well, one spouse is extending great love, but doesn't receive the love they need in return. And I want to be clear, this isn't just bad relationships. This happens in healthy circumstances, healthy marriages, really good friendships and relationships. We all experience this gap, right? This gap between the love we're extending and the love we want to receive in return. So what do we do when we find ourselves in that circumstance where, where we don't get the love we want back in return? And how on earth, how on earth do we find love that loves us back? That's our story this morning. It's more than just this ancient season of The Bachelor, you know. This is our story. And this morning we're going to see three characters who are looking for love in all the wrong places. And they're going to guide us on how we do exactly the same today. Now our story, it begins in Genesis 29 out of the passage you just heard read for us. Would you please turn with me there this morning? 
kind of as a review, we've been in the book of Genesis now for a while, and we've zeroed in on this one particular character, the character of Jacob. This is Abraham's grandson. And before he has this amazing episode where he wrestles with God, which we learned about from Pastor Nathan last week, which is astounding in and of itself, before that happens, we find Jacob on the run because he tricked his older brother Esau and ticked him off. And so he's running for his life, and he goes to Haran, Abraham's hometown. And when he gets there, he meets a girl. He's there at the well, and he meets Rachel, and he finds out that this is his uncle Laban's daughter. And so after he meets Rachel, Rachel brings him back to the fam. That's verse 13. And Laban welcomes him in with open arms and says, what? You're my bone. You're my flesh. You're a part of the family. Why don't you stay with me and work for me for free for a month, right? Great guy. And then eventually, Laban notices something. You see, Jacob is an exceptional shepherd. He's really good at herding sheep, really good. I mean, he's got the pedigree. This is the family business even before Abraham, and he's got the talent to back it up. I mean, this guy is a rock-solid mid-level manager. I mean, he's crushing it. <laughs> and, and Laban knows, hey, if I can keep this guy around, this will be good for my profit margin. So when you get to verse 15, Laban basically says, hey, Jacob, Jacob, my nephew, Jacob. What do I got to do to keep you around? Like, name your price. And then the narrator kind of breaks right there. Because Jacob gives an interesting response, but we won't understand all that's about to come until we understand some of the dynamics at play. When you get to verse 16, look with me here. Verse 16, we read, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, this Hebrew language, this, this translation, Leah's eyes were weak, it's really difficult to translate, and translators disagree on how to navigate this. But here, I think we can get the gist of this passage pretty clearly. What this doesn't mean, it cannot mean, is that somehow Leah had really bad eyesight and Rachel, you know, didn't need corrective lenses. Like, that's not the point here because the contrast is made with Rachel's appearance. So whatever is being communicated here, it's pretty clear that somehow Rachel was culturally, in that particular cultural set of values, very beautiful by everyone in that surrounding. And Leah didn't measure up in comparison. There's something going on there. And so what's Jacob's response to Laban's question? Hey, what do I have to do to keep you around here? Name your price. Jacob goes, I want to marry Rachel. Jacob is thirsty, y'all. And he is like, the only thing that is going to satisfy that thirst is Rachel. And he is desperate. He's all in. And actually, there's a moment in this part of the story where you start to think, Okay, he answered way too quickly to that question. Um, because here's the, here's the deal. Jacob, he's always been a really sneaky character. Like if he had a Match.com profile and it was actually honest, it would describe his character as someone who lies to everyone and manipulates people to get ahead. He probably wouldn't get a lot of interests from potential clients, right? You know, but he plays himself off as this really kind, very interested, industrious individual. The only problem is, is Laban is a lot like Jacob. 
He's cut from the same cloth. He's just had a lot more years to kind of hone his craft. And so now he knows something very valuable about Jacob. He knows Jacob's weak spot. And it's his desire for Rachel. And that's going to come into play later. And so what Jacob does is really astounding. When he says, hey, I want to marry Rachel, he says, listen, listen, I'll do this. I will give seven years of my life and I will work for you for free in order to have your daughter's hand in marriage. And listen, this is real common in some degree in that cultural situation. The groom would come and bring gifts to the bride's family as a way of saying, hey, I care about your family and I really want to marry your daughter. Here are all these gifts. But Jacob had nothing but a walking stick when he showed up to Laban and Laban's like, what you got? And Jacob's like, I got my time. But even still, seven years is exorbitant by that cultural standard. But you see, Jacob, he's just obsessed with Rachel. So what's Laban's response? If you get down to verse 19, we read, Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now, Laban says some really good stuff here. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, yeah, that sounds like a deal. Nowhere does he say yes. And yet Jacob just clicks accept without reading any of the fine print. It's kind of like when it pops up on your apps and you're like, I don't want to pay attention to this. Sure, you can have all of my information, right? Like <clears throat> all your privacy goes out the window. He, he clicks accept mainly because he's just, he's desperate and he just wants so desperately to have Rachel. You look at verse 20, it seems like those seven years fly by. His heart is enraptured in love. It seems like seven years were nothing but a day. And then something really crazy happens. I mean, this is such a bizarre scenario. So the day comes, it's like seven years pass, and to the day, and Jacob, he goes to Laban, he's like, hey, Papa Bear, I'm ready to marry your daughter. Let's get this going. And Laban says, okay. So he gathers the whole people together. I mean, weddings were such a huge affair in this cultural setting and in so many other cultures around the world. It was a full week. It wasn't just like a couple hours in a chapel. You know, it was a full week and there was food and there was dancing and there was drinking. It was pretty intense. And then on the first night of this wedding celebration, you see Jacob... Go in now with his new bride into the marriage tent. It's dark. She's heavily veiled, as was cultural custom. He's a little bit tipsy. And they consummate the marriage. And then the next morning, Jacob wakes up and he rolls over. And the text <laughs> in verse 25 says, Behold, it was Leah. You know, <laughs> I love that. The narrator just does it. And he's like, ha! Ah! Like, how... Hey, like, where, how does this happen? Okay, remember, it's dark. He thought for sure he was getting Rachel. She's heavily veiled. In the words of T-Pain, blame it on the uh, 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 alcohol. Like, this is the way it's kind of unfolding. But still, Jacob is ticked. And so he storms off to Laban, and he demands an explanation. Now, Laban, my friend Andrew Jones, the pastor, uh, campus pastor of the Leewood campus, says, Laban lawyered up. I love that, you know. He lawyers up, basically, and says, hey, 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 settle down, Jacob. Settle down. <laughs> you got to understand, it's, it's, uh, this was wrong for us to give you the younger daughter before the older daughter. 
It's not our custom to marry off the younger daughter before. And interestingly enough, it says the firstborn. And if you know anything about Jacob's story, was it not Jacob's deception to cheat the firstborn, his older brother of the inheritance? So there's a bit of sting here with Laban. It's not our custom, Jacob, to cheat out the firstborn. You know, ooh. <laughs> but we got to take care of the firstborn before we can take care of the younger. But I'll make you a deal. Why don't you finish out this wedding of seven days? And then when you're done, you can also marry Rachel. But you got to work for me another seven years for free. <laughs> What's Jacob going to do? He's desperate. Like he cannot imagine his life without Rachel. Laban knew his weakness. And he got him. Laban got 14 years of free labor from one of the best mid-level managers in the ancient Near Eastern world. Now, a couple of things that are crucial to notice here is that one, Laban is a really bad dad. <laughs> like, how do you do this to your daughters? And then secondly, Jacob isn't that much better, is he? I mean, he's got a history of deceit. This is what he did to his father, Isaac who is growing blind, and he cheats his older brother Esau. This is like a moment of poetic justice. Like if you're reading the story, like, ha-ha, Jacob, you got yours, finally! But the reality is, is that these two men, Jacob and, Leah, or Jacob and Laban, and their manipulation and their deceit, they make Leah's life an utter mess. She didn't want this. I mean, it's hard enough to, to be single and feel unwanted. Especially in this cultural setting, where for a woman to be married and to have children was literally everything. That's where you found your value and your worth, from that cultural perspective. But to be married and to be unwanted, that's far worse. Because now, for the rest of her life, Jacob looks at her and sees her as a mistake. Jacob will never love her the way she longed for a husband to love her. Never! And to make matters worse, her entire life is now compared to her sister. Maybe she grew up. Who knows? Maybe she grew up always in Rachel's shadow. People talking about Rachel, 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 you know? And she thought maybe this was the chance. Sure, my dad's being deceptive. I don't really want to do this, but maybe I'll get married to Jacob and he can take me away from all this mess. But now the rest of her life is compared to her sister. Whenever Jacob looks at her, it was the wife that was forced on him. Whenever Jacob looks at her, he compares her to Rachel. She's always, always the second wife, even though she married him first. I mean, can you imagine a day in the life of Leah? Like if she had a journal, what would that look like? Hey, today I worked pretty hard. I tried to get Jacob's attention, but he seemed preoccupied. I saw Rachel and Jacob laughing over by the well. I wonder what it would be like if he laughed with me one day. Maybe tonight, you know, he'll come and pretend to be my husband and enjoy it. That would be the best day of my month. What's it going to take? I mean, this is awful. This is terrible. 
There's a reason why when you get to the book of Leviticus, it's outlawed. A man is never allowed to marry two sisters. It's against the law. (laughs) And really, if you look across the book of Genesis, many scholars have noticed that basically the book of Genesis is an argument against polygamy because every instance of polygamy leads to destructive behavior. Nowhere across the whole storyline of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, does any incidence of polygamy or bigamy lead to flourishing. Only God's good design of one man and one woman in this mutual commitment of sex and marriage for a lifetime is what's for our good. And we see the interwoven destructive nature of the polygamous marriage here. Well, in the midst of all this pain, when you get to verse 31, God sees Leah when Jacob overlooks her. It's truly astounding. And he honors Leah in a very culturally specific way. He gives her children. He opens her womb. And what's so painful is that you see her journey of pain and how she names her children as you continue on through chapter 29. When she has her first son, Reuben, what does she say? She says, the Lord has seen me, and now maybe Jacob will see me too. When she has Simeon, she says, the Lord has heard that I am hated. And then when she has Levi, she says, now with a third son, maybe my husband will be attached to me. It's this pining after her husband, this longing That maybe, just maybe, she can earn his affection through children. And again and again, her hopes are dashed against the rocks. She never gets the love she longs for, ever. And really, when you look in Genesis 29, no one does. Jacob got Leah. Leah got Jacob and Rachel. Rachel got Jacob and Leah. No one got the love they wanted back. What a painful story. Everybody got a rose, but nobody was happy. (laughs) Now think about your own life. Okay, think, no, seriously, this, as much as this is a unique moment in history, this is much as to say about every single one of our lives around here. I want you to ask yourself, does what you love, love you back? Because when we love something, sometimes we can get so love-struck, so blinded by love that we're blinded to reality. We don't see what actually is. We see what we want to see through rose-colored glasses. And as much as this is like an ancient season of The Bachelor, this is our story. And so I want to look at three diagnostic questions that are really anchored in this text to help each and every one of us discern if what we love is really loving us back and then how to find a love that loves us back. So first, here's the first diagnostic question. Does what you love enslave you? Does what you love, does it exploit you? Does it take from you rather than giving in return? Let's look at Jacob, all right? Obviously, he is obsessed with Rachel. I mean, so obsessed, right, that he's blind to Laban's treachery and he gives up 14 years of his life. Now, before anybody walks out here and says, Gabe is so unromantic. It's like, listen, I love romantic gestures. I get it. And I'm a big fan of marriage. I've got one, okay? 
It's really good. We love it. Um, I think, yeah, we're good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this isn't a romantic gesture. This is love gone awry. You see, Jacob doesn't just love Rachel. His whole experience revolves around Rachel. He has to have Rachel to be okay as a person. And that's not okay. That's slavery. Have you ever known anyone in your life where they're pursuing a relationship and you and maybe other friends around them are saying, hey, 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 that's not going to be a relationship for your good. That's actually going to destroy you. That's going to be really bad for you. And they do it anyway, and it leads to pain and destruction. I know I've made decisions like that in my life. And I know I've seen that play out in those that I love around me. And listen, every single one of us have experienced that before. Do you love something or someone to the point that it's enslaving you? That it's exploiting you? And I want to be very clear. I think sometimes we can hear this and think, oh, this is a young adult problem. This is a human problem no matter what your relationship status when it comes to how we navigate our loves. Every single one of us is wrestling with our loves and what we give our hearts to, who we give our hearts to, and how we put on these blinders and we throw caution to the wind and we plug our ears. What is it that you've given your heart to? But what's also fascinating is Jacob is the obvious one who's here that's enslaved, but he's not the only one. Leah who I actually think is one of the most inspiring characters across the biblical narrative and is simultaneously a victim here. And if you're wondering on how she could be inspiring, we're going to get there, so stay with me. But she's also an example of enslavement. She has so internalized the cultural values of her culture, like these, these values of her culture, so that when she has problems with her husband, what does she think is going to be the solution? Children. When she's having issues with Jacob, she thinks, okay, this is the key solution. Let's plug in children. I have to have children in order for our marriage to be okay. That's going to be the band-aid that fixes this. And it's not okay. But I want to be clear, Leah's not the only one who, you know, fails in this way. Rachel is the same way. If you begin chapter 30 of Genesis, what does Rachel, who's been barren for quite a while after Leah's having all these children, she goes to Drake, Jacob grabs him by the tunic and says, listen, Give me children or I'm going to die. Once again, it becomes all about my whole identity, everything I am, my very existence is based upon this. And if I don't get it, I'm not okay. And that's not okay. Enslaved, exploited, and destroyed. And listen, as a church, we can do that too. Too many times I think the church can idolize the family unit. We can make marriage the end goal or having children what it means to be fully human. And those are good things, but they are not the quick fixes and they're not. No family, no matter how perfect, is ever going to be what gives us ultimately the love back that we've deeply longed for. Family can't make us okay. 
Is it any surprise that as our nation then is becoming more and more a majority single nation, that churches are many times shrinking? Because the, the church has over-idolized the family because of a cultural or ex expectation rather than a biblical expectation. And so many single folks in our context feel like they have no home in the church. You see, every single one of us, every single one of us, loves something or someone in a disordered way. What is that for you? Does what you love love you back? Does what you love enslave you? Now, let me ask you another question. This will maybe help also continue to help us discern what, what we're loving and whether it's healthy and good for us. Does what you love disappoint you? Everyone in this story is pretty disappointed, aren't they? <laughs> but it comes to a head in many ways with Jacob and Leah. Like, that's the best example. One Old Testament scholar by the name of Derek Kidner, he brilliantly says, like, the story of Jacob and Leah is a great summary of the human experience. By that he means, you know, it's dark, it's, life is veiled, maybe a little tipsy, and he thinks he's going to, to wed Rachel, he's finally going to feel loved, he's going to feel whole, everything's going to be right in the world, and he wakes up and it's Leah. <laughs> and that's not to throw shade at Leah. The idea is that no matter what your Rachel is in life, metaphorically, it will end up to be a Leah. It's always going to be less than what you expect. And we do this with so many relationships. We come with these unrealistic expectations. You know, we think that we've got the best Rachel in the world. And then we get a real look at it and it feels like Leah. And we're wondering why we're so disappointed. And for many, the disappointment isn't the fault of the other, right? They may be great folks, really great folks, but no one... No one can hold up underneath the godlike expectations we often bring to the people around us. You know, Pastor Henry Thompson told me of a pretty tragic episode that happened earlier this year. The Dale Bend Bridge, that's in Arkansas, it was built in 1930, it's a historic landmark. It collapsed earlier this year in January. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, maybe it just was due to disrepair. Maybe there wasn't enough finances to care for this, this bridge that's a part of the history. Well, the reality is, is that an 18-wheeler went across this bridge carrying 64,000 pounds more than its suggested weight limit. <laughs> and the result was pretty crushing. What a brilliant metaphor for how we often approach the relationships in our life. We come with these weighty expectations for the people around us. And when actually life hits, it, they can't hold up underneath that. And it comes crashing down. And we look with great disappointment. Well, why couldn't you hold up these expectations for me? Why couldn't you be the person I so desperately needed you to be? And the reality is, is that you'll never find that perfect Rachel. And if you find that perfect Rachel, guess what? They'll change. <laughs> because people change. Even in marriage. I had one pastor tell me, you know, look, I've, married, I've been married to five different women. And they're all the same person because over time, people change. 
So even if you think you've found the perfect Rachel, they'll change. But the reality is you'll never find the perfect Rachel until you become like Leah. Stay with me. You see, her story takes a really interesting turn. I didn't finish it on purpose. Her story takes a really interesting turn. Now she gets married, right? In a marriage she didn't choose. In a marriage her father forced through deception. So she enters a relationship as a disappointment. She's enslaved to Jacob's attention, his affection, and his opinion. And never seems to, seems to win him over. She becomes disillusioned with Jacob. She becomes angry with her sister, Rachel. And really, she never fully stops wrestling with this. It's like one day, over those years, she finally comes to realize that Jacob will never give her back the love she do so desperately longs for. It's like... If you use the language in the text, it's like one morning she rolls over and behold, Jacob is still Jacob, right? But something does happen. Through each one of her children, in verses 31 through 35, yes, through the first three children, with Reuben, she's hungry for her husband's affection. You know, the Lord has seen me. Maybe Jacob will see me with Simeon. You know, the Lord has heard that I am hated. Maybe now's the time with Levi. The Lord has seen me, and now maybe my husband will be attached to me. And the answer to each one of those scenarios is no, 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 until finally something happens. She has a fourth child. And we see her story on display. In each of her first children, she's pining after her husband's approval, connection, and intimacy. But with Judah, she then says, this time I will praise the Lord. No longer is she focused on what Jacob can do for her. No longer is she hoping that one day Jacob might change her mind. But her sights have been redirected to one person and one alone. The one who has always seen her. The one who has always heard her. The one who has been providing for her from the beginning. Her God. Her Lord. Yahweh. You see, Jacob, after this moment, doesn't come to love her any differently. Her circumstances don't change. But where she's looking for love does. And she's found an amazing love where it never exploits her. A love that never disappoints. And a love that frees her to a new kind of life. It's the love of God. And so I want to ask you this morning, does what you love free you? Does what you love free you? In this story, and really every story ever, there's only one kind of love that will love us back the way we ultimately long to be loved, and that's God's love. Have you received His love? It's readily available. And you want to know how you know if you've received his love? Listen, the way this story ends is truly fascinating. In verse 35, we read at the end here of chapter 29 that then she ceased bearing, or then Leah ceased bearing children. What's fascinating is if you keep reading in chapter 30, 
Leah has more children. So what on earth is Moses communicating here? He, he clearly, in my opinion, is not communicating a bodily reality because she actually does go on to have more children. She then ceased to have children. I think it's communicating a heart reality that she doesn't need children to make her whole anymore. She doesn't need Jacob's affection in the same way she did anymore. She's actually undergone a certain transformation because of who she knows loves her. Then she ceased bearing. She's discovered something truly astounding. And it's not a new strength she's discovered within herself, by herself. Instead, it's in receiving a love outside of herself and orienting and focusing her life around that one, her creator, her king, and her Lord. And once she makes that discovery, then she realizes she can step off the treadmill of performance and be okay. She cannot get that promotion and be okay. Her spouse, her kids, her parents, her friends, her church can fail her and she can be okay. Because the reality is, is that everything, every plan we try to make is going to be tweaked because we don't control everything. And we're going to be experiencing disappointment, but do we have the ballast to continue on and to be okay? Every single one of us has a choice to make. Whose love will we orient our lives around? Does what you love free you? And you know what's fascinating about Leah's story? This loving God, you know what he gives her? It takes generations to play out, mind you. But remember, the son that she gives birth to around the realization that her primary focus should be on her God, Judah. Through Judah comes the line of David, through whom the promised one will come, that he's promised from the very beginning, will actually set this whole world aright. And when you get to the genealogy of Jesus in the first chapter of Matthew, what do you find but Judah, son of Leah? Leah gets to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus and gets to be a part of the greatest love story this world has ever known. That's our God on display. So how do you find a love that loves you back? You fall into the arms of Jesus. That's your only hope. We sang about it earlier. Sean and the team were leading us. He is our hope. The foundation throughout all other hopes come. You fall on him because it was before you pursued him, before you had your life right, before you looked really good. That first moment you wake out of bed, that's when Jesus chased after you. I love the way the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrates or he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's his love. And Jesus is that better bachelor who's ready with an armful of roses for anybody who will come to him. He's that better husband, that better brother, that better friend that we could ever hope for, the one who always sees, the one that always hears, the one that is always ready for a deeper intimacy if we will just look to him and fall into his arms. Does what you love Love you back? 
Does what you love free you? Why settle for anything less than that? And today we have a brilliant opportunity, as we do every week, to come and have a meal with our God and one another. And isn't it here at the Lord's Supper where we remember the greatest act of love this world over, that Jesus, before we deserved anything, because we never deserved any of this, he went to the cross and he died for us. Through common broken bread, we remember his body broken for us. Through common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're new, let me walk you through how we'll partake in that together. You'll come down the aisle if you're over on this side. If you're over on this side, you'll kind of loop around and you'll gather in groups of about four to six. You'll take the bread, dip it in the juice, hold on to it. You'll partake together. If you have a child who's yet to proclaim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, our servers will offer a blessing because Jesus always blesses the little ones when they come to him. But before you come, I want to do something slightly different. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you come to the table, I want you to be thinking about what are the loves in your life and how are they competing with God's love. And when you come and you partake of the bread and the juice and you eat, I want you in that moment to say, whatever it is that's going on in your life, say, this time I will praise the Lord. Whatever it is that's competing for your heart, whatever it is that's leaving you empty, whatever's trying to exploit you or disappoint you, I want you to take that bread and reorient your heart and say, my focus is on you this time, I will praise the Lord. And if you're here and you're not yet a believer in God's great love for you, I want you to stay seated and I want you to take this time to assess the loves in your life. Does what you love love you back? Does it free you? And ask God to reveal his great love for you afresh because it is so rich. And before we come to the table, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready.